Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here. Uh, we're starting our Christmas series called The Unexpected King. We're going to be in this series for about four weeks. And uh, each of these Sundays, what we're going to do is we're going to look at an Old Testament prophecy that told the people of God to expect Jesus. And yet we're going we're gonna to look at that and we're going to get into the New Testament. We're going to talk about how not only did God fulfill those promises and prophecies that Jesus would come to save the world, but we're also going to look at the fact that in all of these cases, people still miss the fact that he came, that they still miss the fact that Jesus, God's son, would walk the earth as a savior of the world. Now, part of that reason is God often, even though he prophesied and, and, and proclaimed and promised that Jesus would come, did so in a way that to us, to humans, it was unconventional. And because it was unconventional, because it wasn't, isn't the way we would do it, we, and, and people then and people even now, continue to miss that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. So we're going we're gonna to look at uh, different prophecies um, all Christmas season. So all of December, we're going to be going back to the Old Testament, kind of connecting these to things in the New Testament and talking about those. Um, you heard just a, a second ago that we've got some different things that you can use to invite uh, friends, family, coworkers who may be disconnected from community, far from God, to come and join us. Uh, I, I would love for you to take uh, those various Christmas cards, the small ones, the big ones, what have you, uh, we'd love to run out of those because you're so excited about inviting people to hear the gospel message. Starting January, uh, in the first week of January, we're all, uh, I'm asking you guys all to join us in reading the Bible in a year. And so we've kind of picked a plan so we can all do that in the same pace, same time. There is uh, an optional devotional that goes with that that you're free to uh, read. All of that, uh, if you've seen the slides that are out there, I mean, there's an app for it. You can get an email for it. You can go to a website. I get, get a lot of options depending on how you like to do that. Uh, but we would love for you to read with us this year as we attempt to read through the Bible in a year together. And then January 7th, we'll start a new series called Go. Uh, that will also be our Vision Sunday. We're gonna spend some time on that Sunday looking at where God is leading our church over the course of the next three to five years. So lots of fun that's coming up. Uh, we're gonna start today in Isaiah. I'm gonna give you all three of the, the main points for the sermon today right up front. So you just write them down just in case I get excited and carried away and I, not that that ever happens, uh, but that I get, I, I, and I miss them. I'm just gonna give it to you now and then and try to make sure I, I don't forget to say them in the middle of the sermon either. Uh, here they are, three big points. Number one, we make terrible gods. Number two, God mostly works through community and we overlook it. God mostly works through community and we overlook it. And three, God's plan is always dependence over human power, dependence instead of human power. Those are our three big points. All right, we're gonna start in Isaiah 7, and I'm gonna read you uh, 10 through 14, so five verses from Isaiah. I'll give you some context afterwards to kind of explain where this kind of comes from. Uh, Isaiah 7, join me, I'm gonna read in the ESV, 10 through 14. It says, the sign of Emmanuel. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, this is Isaiah speaking, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. 
Now, a little background context where when you see Ahaz here, uh, there's two people speaking in this passage. King Ahaz, the king of Judah, and the prophet Isaiah. So they're speaking, this is recorded in about 735 BC, and about 200 years prior to that, uh, the 12 tribes, so God, God's nation had separated into 12 tribes, uh, got into some conflict about who should be king. 10 of the 12 tribes separated. They went their own way, kind of like their own little civil war, uh, and they formed the nation of Israel to the north. Two of the nations that remained uh, committed to the Lord stayed in the south, and that is the nation of Judah. So that's about, that happened about 200 years before this is taking place. And so now what's happened over that last two centuries or so is uh, the nation of Assyria has grown really powerful right around them and has begun to really kind of flex some political muscle and, and, and made a lot of overtures like they're going to come take over and so on and so forth. And so Israel gets nervous um, and they make a pact with Syria to basically form a little coalition to defend against Assyria. And they want Judah to join them. And King Ahaz and Judah, basically God has said no. And so he's reluctant to do that. And so they're, they decide they're gonna put a lot of pressure on Ahaz. What they're gonna do is they're gonna remove him from office and they're gonna put in like a dummy king of, over Judah so that he'll, he'll listen to them. So they bring an army to Jerusalem to take over. So Ahaz here is pretty worried and uh, the prophet Isaiah is essentially saying, why are you worrying? Like God has already spoken about this. God already has a plan. And if you have a lack of faith in God and what he's already said and what he's already done, just ask him for a sign. In fact, God's already said, if you'll just ask him for a sign, he'll show you. And Ahaz, so caught up in his own planning, his own scheming, his own capabilities and competencies, not only is he not listening to God, he won't even ask God for a sign. That, that's essentially what we're saying here. And so what we get out of that is this response from God through Isaiah, which is a prophecy, not really about what's going on right then at all, but rather about what will come, what will be 700 years later. Now, what's interesting about these two men uh, having this conversation, which is where this prophecy is born, and we're gonna follow it to its completion today so we can kind of look at how God remained faithful to his promise, is uh, they are very different individuals. King Ahaz and the prophet Isaiah are just quite different. Uh, Isaiah, if we read from the beginning of the book, we'll find that Isaiah was actually given a vision in which he saw God, which is incredibly rare in the Bible. For anyone to actually see God, it almost only happens in a vision. You can't see God it says a mortal man can't see God without dying. He gets to see God in a vision. It changes him forever. If you've ever read the book of Isaiah, you realize that the, from the moment he sees God, everything changes in his life. He becomes completely different. He becomes consumed with just wanting to see the glory of God again. And then we have King Ahaz, uh, quite a different man. Um, we'll read a little bit about him today before we jump over to Luke and look at the fulfillment of this prophecy. But here's point number one. Point number one is this. We make terrible gods. I mean, we're just really bad at it. And yet, we all tend to try to do it. Uh, if, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, uh, God has created perfection. Everything is perfect. There's no sin. There's no pain. There's no death. And Adam and Eve are entirely dependent on God. They walk with God. They're dependent on God. God is taking care of everything. And so uh, the Bible would say everything is perfect. In the Bible, they would call it shalom, perfect peace. And yet, what does Satan do in the garden, but not only deceive them, like he still deceives us today, and what is his message to them, to deceive them? God's holding back on you. 
God doesn't want what's best for you. You know what? You deserve to be like God. Think about how bad things could be. Think about how much better they would be if just you were in charge. You, you could be like God. Deceives Adam and Eve into disobedience from God. And from that moment, sin enters the world. So Isaiah is essentially talking to King Ahaz saying, listen, God already has control of this. God already has a plan for this. God has already promised this. And if you're doubting him, simply ask for a sign. Just ask God. And Ahaz's response, nope, got this. Got it handled. I, uh, I've had an opportunity many times to, to counsel uh, uh, young men and, and friends and everything else on uh, plans. And I, I gotta be honest, like this is maybe the, one of the most common human tendencies is to decide, man, I can handle this. In fact, I don't even need to ask God. I got this under control. I, I have uh, two really good buddies about 10 years ago, a couple years apart, but uh, about 10 years ago, and uh, both of them, uh, very close with them, just out of nowhere up and said, I'm moving my whole family out of state somewhere. And in both cases, I asked them, I was like, hey man, what, what in your prayer life has really led you to believe that God is leading you to do that? And it was pretty interesting. It was like, uh, here's what I mean by that. Um, they had a nice list of pros and cons. Anyone ever make lists of pros and cons? Yes, I mean, we do that, right? Like, kind of logically, like, listen, I've got a lot of pros, like California's this and that and the other thing. I'm like, oh yeah, that's absolutely. That's not what I asked you. I didn't ask you if you had pros and cons. I didn't ask you if it was a good logical decision. I asked you, where is God leading your family? And it got really quiet, like, oh, uh, yeah, God. Right, him. Yeah, 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 uh, we prayed about it. He really wants us to go. I said, oh, you prayed about it, that's cool. Because as far as I know, I'm your closest Christian accountability, and this is the first I'm hearing of it. It got about as quiet with them as it is with you right now. <laughs> kind of like, oh God, yeah, forgot. It. What, a, what, what a coincidence. I think he's in, yeah, I think he wants me to do it too. Whoa, 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 whoa. We got that out of order. Where is God lead? We, we, are, we are masters at devising plans and then every once in a while we decide to check in and see if God likes our plan. So we're gonna fast forward about seven centuries. This, about, this happens about 735 BC. We're gonna fast forward about seven centuries forward. And what we're gonna look at is how God fulfills this promise that a son will be born of a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel. Now, how long is 735 years? Long, it's a long time. Um, I'll put that in context. The United States has been around about 240 something years. I don't, we could probably go back and figure out what 1776 minus, yeah, well, I'm not a math major. But take the entire length of the United States being a nation and triple that. That's how long it goes from this promise to the fulfillment of this promise. It's a long time. I mean, if you need to know how long, it's about as long as your kids think it will take to clean their room. <laughs> about, I mean, I'm not measuring in metric because I'm American, which means I'm dumb. Okay, anyways. 735 years later, long time, we get to Luke 1, 26 through 38. So join with me. We're going to look at the fulfillment of this promise, and we're going to see some things in here in which God will not only fulfill this promise because he's faithful, 
but we're gonna see some things about how God moves in power. This is the birth of Jesus. So verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Just stop right there. We're going to keep going in a minute. Why, why would she be greatly concerned, distressed? Not that there's an angel. Most of the time we see an angel show up in the Bible and people are scared. Why would she be distressed that he called her, oh, favored one? That, that seems odd. Well, let's just remember who she, uh, Gabriel is talking to. Mary is, is likely about somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. She's very young. I know in our minds we think of her as much older, but she's not. She's very young, 13, 14-year-old girl. She's betrothed to Joseph. We'll talk about what betrothal looked like in a minute. It's a formal engagement. She's also incredibly poor. So she, not only is she poor now, but even Joseph, who's very poor, they will be poor the rest of their lives. Jesus will be raised in poverty even before he goes out on his own. In fact, we know that they're gonna be poor because if we turn over to Luke 2.24, um, when we see Mary and Joseph go to the temple to give a sacrifice, they give two turtle doves. And you're thinking like, okay, what, why does that matter? They give two doves. In Mosaic law, you, were, you gave certain types of sacrifices at the temple. Doves were reserved for the poorest of poor. You only gave doves if you were so poor you couldn't afford anything else. Then you gave doves. That's how poor they are. They're at the bottom rung of society. She's also from Nazareth. We know Nazareth is literally nowhere. Like you think Bakersfield's small. You think Taft is small. Taft is a teeming metropolis compared to Nazareth. Nazareth is nowhere. In fact, it's so nowhere that in John 1:46, when the disciples find out that Jesus is from Nazareth, they literally say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's that bad. So I got a 13, 14-year-old teenage girl, incredibly poor, in the middle of nowhere. So why is she distressed? Because an angel just called her favored one. She's like, listen, brother, you got the wrong house. <laughs> favored one? Man, I, no way. Me? Look, this isn't 2023 where everyone thinks they're like one TikTok video away from being a multimillionaire. <laughs> like, oh, I just, I'm gonna win the lotto. No, you're not. But at least back then, they knew they weren't. In that society in the first century, in the Middle East, like people weren't moving between these socioeconomic classes. She, there's no get-rich-quick schemes. You know, what she, you know what her whole hope for her life is? Survival. Man, I hope I survive. And an angel shows up and is like, greetings, favored one? Who are you talking to? Have you seen my life? So Gabriel, Gabriel is the angel that God sends in the Bible for great announcements. Gabriel is the, the angel that's sent to the prophet Daniel, right? Like God sends Gabriel to this teenage girl. 
in Nazareth, AKA Taft, California, the meth capital of the world. I'm sorry if you're from Taft, I apologize. And says, greetings, favored one. Of course she's troubled. Of course she's distressed. Verse 30, he keeps going. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. She's going like, what? How did a 14-year-old impoverished girl from the middle of nowhere find favor with God? We're going to see in a second. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That means Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, what's interesting is that she believes him. She's not arguing. So if we we flip back into an earlier part of Luke 1, her cousin, who's much, much older, in fact, um, is so old that doesn't believe that she could even conceive anymore, uh, Zachariah and and his wife Elizabeth are told by an angel, by Gabriel, that they're going to have a son, and Zachariah doesn't, he, he scoffs at the idea. He doesn't even believe. Mary believes. Like, this is a logical question. Okay, I believe you, but... um. I don't know if you took biology, Gabriel. How's that going to work? And it's, a, it's an important theological point. Uh, Thomas Aquinas would say it this way. In order that the body of Christ might be shown to be a real body, he was born of a woman because he, he was incarnate. He was all fully human. But in order that his Godhead might be made clear, he was born of a virgin. Verse 35 The angel's gonna explain it. Gabriel says this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, it's actually incredibly theologically important that Jesus was born of a virgin. Romans 5.12 will tell us that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, Meaning, when Adam sins in the garden, sin has now entered the world, sin and death, and it is passed down from the lineage of Adam all the way down generation after generation to you and I through the Father's line. So the only way that Jesus can come and be fully human and yet not have sin is if he's born of a woman but not of a man. And that's what Gabriel is explaining to Mary. This is the promise fulfilled from 735 years earlier, from Isaiah's prophecy. That was misunderstood at the time. In fact, uh, we believe that historically, uh, Jews read that prophecy and thought that when it said, he will be born of a virgin, it just meant that he would be born the firstborn of someone who was a virgin before they got married, and they completely missed the implications of what was laid out both in that prophecy and in the fulfillment of that prophecy. But this is a monumental moment in human history. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection will fulfill over 300 Old Testament prophecies. So we get to the kind of the climax of this, this moment. Here's an angel 
the angel in charge of huge declarations of the Lord and announcements, standing before this little girl, telling her that these prophecies will be fulfilled through her. And, and you're like, you're at the, the moment where the whole world is going to change. And then it seems like he changes the subject. Verse 36, this is really, really important, even though it seems weird. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So she's six months pregnant, for nothing is impossible with God. Now that seems just totally out of left field. Why are you mentioning this? We're gonna see in a moment that the angel mentions this specifically to send Mary to Elizabeth, because they're not close, and they don't live close to one another. Verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, now, uh, many commentaries, if you're reading this story, will talk about Mary's faithfulness in in how she responds to the angel, uh, that she's full of faith. And that's true. She's not arguing with uh, the angel. She doesn't do what Gideon does, right? And that's for like nine different signs. So I'm gonna need a fleece and it's need to be wet and it's not wet and it's dry. And I need, she just, she, let it be, right? God's will be done. I would say this though, that's not an overjoyed, thanks, thankful response, right? You see that, right? That tone is not like, woo! Gonna have God's baby! That's like, Okay, great. Let it be. Uh, I'm your humble servant. Sure. I would call this reluctant obedience, not a joyful response. But let me tell you why. Um, betrothal was a little bit different than engagement today. It was much more formal, and there were multiple stages. So in the first stage of betrothal, which she's betrothed to this man named J- Joseph, um, her dad and Joseph's dad would have worked out a price for the bride in which Joseph's dad paid her dad some money, kind of promised a certain amount of money um, for, for the bride. And then they would then enter into a public betrothal or engagement in which now it wasn't private anymore, but it was publicly known, and it was a done, it was a done deal. The only way that that betrothal in the second stage, which is where they're at, could be broken, was divorce or death. That stage would last one year. The reason that stage would last one year was to have a full amount of time to ensure that the bride wasn't pregnant. You're seeing where there's a problem here, right? The whole reason that they had a full year was to make sure that she wasn't pregnant, to make sure that she was a virgin, to make sure that when he got his bride, no one else had been with his bride, and the angel just told her what? You're going to be pregnant. It's not going to be Joseph's. Slight problem with the engagement, yes? Little deviation from the plan, yes? So why is she not overjoyed? She just realized like, oh, crap. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Sure, Gabriel. It's going to be great, you know, because all they do when they find out that you're uh, an adulteress is, you know, stone you. Going to be amazing because, you know, I have a lot of options being 14 in the middle of nowhere and dirt poor. Epic. It's just what I, I mean, you could see the Instagram post coming right now, right? This is the difference between my plan and God's plan, your plan and God's plan. 
Did you ever know that God's leading you into an act of obedience? He's, he's moving you towards something, and your first response is, how do I feel about that? Let me evaluate my options and how much I like God's plan. You ever have arguments with God in your head? Okay, you don't, but I do, so just pretend you're me for a minute. And God leads you something. You're just like, listen, God, I swear you have not looked at my plan once. It's in a three-ring binder. It has bullet points and milestones. I have laid everything. Maybe we could just, you and I could get it and do a little whiteboard sesh, you know, and just, just spitballing here. God leads, and at best, we're reluctantly obedient. Fine. And then we're the Eeyore Christian. You know, the world's attracted to that kind of joy, right? Just being obedient to God. Begrudgingly obedient. Now, let, let, me show you the, let me show you the goodness of God in the middle of this, okay? The, the goodness of God is that weird verse in the middle of the announcement of the angel telling Mary about this old cousin she has that's out of town who also has a baby. Seems super weird. They're not close. They don't live nearby. But he tells her that. Now watch what happens. This is really important. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now just real quickly, she only went here because the angel mentions Elizabeth. They're not close. This, this town is three days away on foot in mountain passes. So she's walking three days to go find Elizabeth, whom she's not close to. But watch what happens in 41. Verse 41, okay, she walks in. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Well, the, a couple things. First of all, that's how Mary should have responded, but didn't. But, 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 but look at how much of this work is, is Holy Spirit driven. Elizabeth has no idea that Mary's even pregnant. She just, she just became pregnant. She's not showing. She just shows up out of nowhere. This distant relative walks in the door and immediately a baby leaps in her womb and she's filled with the Holy Spirit and the knowledge that what? Blessed are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, meaning God's hand is on you, Mary. How do you know that? Holy Spirit's telling her. And then what else? That you are the mother of my Lord? She, she, unknowingly, Elizabeth just said, God's hand upon you, and God is inside of you. I mean, she's talking like Trinitarian theology. Two pregnant ladies in the Middle East, the first century. Like God has filled her with the Holy Spirit. She's overjoyed, almost like she just whew, spills over the top, reacts the way that Mary should have reacted with joy. This perspective, like Elizabeth in that moment gets it. She gets it. Now, here's her benefit. Elizabeth has had six months to process 
even just God's hand on her. Because remember, Elizabeth was also given a gift of a son in her old age and her husband didn't even believe it. And now she's six months of kind of processing how good God is. And then all of a sudden, in walks Mary, Holy Spirit fills her and she's just overjoyed at seeing God's hand on her life and on Mary's life. Now, what is going to happen based on this is one of the most famous passages of scripture in the Bible. It's called Mary's Song. We read it all the time. It's this beautiful song. And it's often called the Magnificat, which is the Latin word for the first word in this song. I'm gonna read it to you and then I'm gonna go back and kind of look at it. But I just want you to see what happens. This is the impact of Elizabeth being filled with the spirit, impacting Mary, and then Mary just spills over the top. Here's what it says. Verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Again, she wouldn't know any of this without the Holy Spirit. Verse 46, here's Mary. And Mary said, this is an uneducated 14-year-old girl in the Middle East. We're not even sure if she could read. Now listen to what comes out of her mouth. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. I'm not going to read to the end here, but I just want you to notice the difference between, do let me start here. Do we see a difference between Mary's tone from the angel to now? Okay. I just want to make sure you're with me. You're still with me, right? Okay. Say yes. Okay. Just checking. Sometimes it gets, you know, you get a little, a little tired if you haven't had enough caffeine. I just want to make sure. Okay. What changed? When Mary hears the first time, she hears this, this amazing news from Gabriel, and it's kind of a reluctant, a reluctant obedience. And then now, all of a sudden, this overjoyed, just this song of thanksgiving, just rich in the glory of God and in, in theological implications. Uh, like what changed? I'll tell you what changed. She, she walked into a community of believers. Elizabeth changed her. The Holy Spirit's presence in Elizabeth changed Mary. It changed Mary's perspective. Mary went from reluctantly obedient to overjoyed because God worked through Elizabeth. The angel prompted her to go to Elizabeth. She still had to obey. She still had to take that prompting to do something with it. She had to walk three days journey up into a mountain city to find Elizabeth whom she wasn't close to, first of all. And then when she did, God reacted by pouring his spirit out on Elizabeth and impacting her. You and I make terrible gods. And if we're going to really experience the glory of God, the work of God, the love of God. We primarily experience that through the outpouring of him through other people, through other believers. This is why there's such a call to community. It calls us to our need for dependence on God and dependence on the people of God. We talk about community all the time. We're constantly on you about, hey, find your people, get in a group, get in a group, 
be known. <laughs> Why? Because it, it matters over and over. Look at, it, look at the difference in Mary's life. Point two, God mostly works through community and we overlook it. Elizabeth has the experience of now being six months removed from the shock of it to realize the blessing of it. And she gets to impart that on Mary when Mary walks in the door. And all of a sudden, perspective. Oh my. This is more than just me being annoyed with the inconvenience in my life of what God's doing. Now there's a perspective on how big God is, how far reaching God is, how good God is. I talked to somebody just last week who was talking about a lot of stuff going on in their life. My first question to them, who are your people? What, who are your people? What, who in your life loves Jesus, loves the church, and loves you in that order? You have to have people. You have to pull people in. You have to be known and know them. You have to have given them the authority in your life to call you on things, to encourage you on things, to say no or yes to things, and you actually listen instead of getting offended. Oh, did I, is that too far? I'm sorry. I'll give you a story. Uh, about three or four years ago, um, I was at the, I'm just at the end of my rope. You ever been at the end of your rope? Yes. Okay, at least a couple of you. The rest of you are lying. Um, I was at the end of my rope, and uh, I called Russ. Russ was senior pastor at the time. Called Russ, and I was like, I quit. Quit. And, uh, and he's like, Daniel, are you emotional? And I was like, yeah, clearly, right? And he goes, okay, uh, do we make good decisions when we're emotional? No. <laughs> okay. Then uh, I'm not gonna accept this resignation. I'm gonna wait a, a few weeks and I'm gonna check in on you. And he had the authority in my life because we had a close relationship to be able to say that and me have to go, okay. I didn't get my way. Man, was that a blessing? <laughs> Listen, you, you don't want your way most of the time. We make lousy gods. And we need people in our life that love the Lord, love the church, love us, who go, hey, that doesn't sound right. And we have to go, okay. We need people. The implication of Elizabeth on Mary here is just fascinating. Fascinating. And I, listen, I get that we live in a culture that tells you you should stay isolated, you should stay surface level, you should guard your privacy. I mean, we won't even answer the door anymore, right? We got little, little robots to stare at people, see who they are. I wanna go to the door, whoa, whoa, whoa. She traveled, 13, 14, 15 year old girl traveled three days on foot for community. So I'm just gonna tell you, small group might be inconvenient. No one's asking you to walk three days to get to small group, okay? So just when you consider it, it's, we'll go, it's okay to drive is all I'm saying. When you're coming up with your excuses, you can remember her. I'm just gonna leave that there, all right. 
This is God's fulfillment of his promise. And what I want you to see is uh, this. This is the beginning of the most monumental moment in human history. The birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus is the center of all of human history from, from beginning to end. There, there is nothing like this moment. This is the start. And for a moment, I want you to see how, 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 how weird and crazy you and I get when it comes to coming up with plans and not being dependent on God. Here's what I mean by that. Um, if you told me, uh, if God came to me and said, Daniel, I'm gonna give you all of the resources that are at my disposal, which is basically everything, right? You can have all the heavenly authority, all the resources, all the miraculous power, anything you want to plan how the savior is gonna come to the world, right? I'm gonna make it big. I mean, I'm, I'm, gonna, think, I'm gonna think pretty big, right? And so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna collect all of the, the biggest, best, brightest people. I mean, I'm gonna get the thinkers, the people with power, the most creative people, the inventors, like Elon Musk, I'm gonna bring him in, right? And the Apple guy, whatever his name was. I'm gonna, you, can you raise Steve Jobs from the dead? I heard he was creative. Just gonna get them all in a room. We're gonna have the best coffee because I mean, we got all the resources, right? It's gonna be very bougie. We're gonna get them all in the room. We're gonna have a big whiteboard and we're gonna plan something grand. I mean, it's gonna be just What does Jesus do? Listen, I'm gonna go to Taft, I mean, uh, Nazareth. I'm gonna find one of the poorest people there. Let's go with a teenager. Let's go with a female who's completely and utterly dismissed in this culture. Yeah, that's what it is. We're gonna get a 13, 14 year old poor teenager. That's where I'm gonna send my son. What? Like, what? Again, God, did you read my PowerPoint? Like, I, let me go back to an earlier one. When she says, you, when, when, when Gabriel tells Mary, you found favor with God, how did she find favor with God? Well, let me explain. She was completely and utterly dependent on God. Just completely dependent. Like, she had no... She had no thought that she was gonna do this on her own. There was no, Mary had no like Mary's plan and God's plan, like complete dependency on God. This fulfillment is exactly what you're seeing as the problem when Isaiah gives the prophecy in the first place. And he's talking to Ahaz and Ahaz is like, listen, I got a plan. He's like, yeah, I know, your plan is crap. (laughs) Complete dependence on God. Listen to her song. Talk about dependence. Verse 47. This is Mary's song of praise. Verse 47, uh, or end of 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What does that even mean? It means the lowliness. She is very self-aware. Man, you didn't, you didn't pick me because I'm some unique snowflake. I'm, that, I'm just waiting for my big shot. No, no, she gets it. He looked upon the lowly estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Not great, not amazing, not powerful, blessed. You will see the hand of God on my life because you know who I was, and then God intervened, and now you see who I am. Do you see the gospel in that? 
Man, if you knew me before Jesus and you know me now, then you know God is good, amen? Not because I was anything, but because you can see God's hand on me. That's what she's saying. Like, I, I was, I, I am nothing, and yet God has come and touched me. And now, for the rest of human history, people will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his name, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You go back to Isaiah 7, right? There's two plans. King Ahaz's plan of human authority. Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run this the way I want to run this. And a plan of dependence on God. Don't, don't miss this. If, you, if you've never heard the term the gospel in terms of knowing what it means, I don't mean gospel music. I mean the gospel. The gospel is the idea that you and I are in need of a savior. Because Adam sinned in the garden and every generation since then has been a generation that comes from Adam we have in us what he had in him because of his sin. And we've had it since birth. I was born into sin. I was born dead to God. I was born an enemy of God. And I'm in need of a savior. The gospel message is that you can't save yourself. He had to come do it. The point where the gospel finally penetrated my heart. I was in college. And the moment I finally understood the gospel was the moment I realized my worst enemy is me. I'm the problem. Because I'll be honest, up until that point, everybody else was the problem. I was certain of it. They're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem. They're the, if they would just listen to me, I got a plan. They're the problem, they're the problem. They're, finally, when God saved me, I, he opened my eyes to this realization that I'm the problem. Listen to me. I, I'm not trying to be mean, but you need to understand your greatest problem is you. No amount of therapy, no amount of books on like, you know, just getting it done, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. No amount of like visualization exercises is going to change the, you can move states. And the crazy thing is that when you get to Texas, you're still there. You can't run from your problems when you're the problem. What the gospel message is saying is that deep down inside every single one of us, something has gone utterly wrong and it would take a God-sized plan to save it. So God sends his son in a way to demonstrate complete dependence on God so that we would understand that at the very central message of the gospel is a dependence on him, that he would do the saving, that he'll do the leading, that he'll do the sanctifying, that he'll do the transforming. God's plan, 
like it did all the way back in Isaiah 7, like it did in Luke 1, like it does in 2023, is always for dependence on him over human power. Always. God's plan always involves dependence. Three things I mentioned at the beginning. Number one, we make terrible gods. We're awful at it, and yet we keep wanting to do it. We keep wanting to grab hold of the wheel and fix the problem that we can't fix. Number two, God mostly works through community, and we just tend to overlook it and dismiss it. All the time, these are lies you're going to tell yourself, that you can fix the problem and that you don't need other people to do it. Those are lies. And God's plan is always dependence over human power, leaning into God. If you are far from God today, in fact, if you, if you came in these doors and you, you, you never have actually experienced or met Jesus as your personal savior, the Bible would say that to be saved by him is as simple as declaring with your mouth and believing in your heart that he is Lord. And I'll be honest, if he's already pulling you toward that, he's already saving you. It's his work, not yours. It just sometimes we're slow to realize what he's doing. He will raise you from the dead. He will put his spirit in you and he will begin to transform and sanctify you into holiness. It is a beautiful thing. And if you are in that place today where you'd love to know what it looks like to take those next steps as Jesus saves you, our prayer team and our elders are gonna be up here. We would absolutely love to talk to you about that. The Bible says that all of heaven celebrates when one person comes to the Father. We wanna celebrate with you. If you're a believer already in Jesus, let me just remind you, my most common problem as a believer in Jesus is mistakenly believing that Jesus has done enough and I got it from here. Jesus isn't done with you yet. He's not done with me yet. And there'll be no point between here and heaven that you need to take over for Jesus. Amen? So maybe today, um, maybe today you need to make some commitments to the Lord about your dependence on him and your involvement in community. Maybe you, like me, have continued to try to put your hands back on that steering wheel and put your plan in action instead of his. So as Christmas approaches, why don't you and I recommit our hearts to his power and his plan and his way and his holiness in every part of our life. Let us commit to experiencing that love and that encouragement through other people, his community that he's placed in our life. I would ask you to be intentional about pushing into being dependent on him and being involved in community. And just assume that your own feelings are probably gonna let you down and lead you astray. Amen? I'm gonna pray for us. Then we're gonna stand as we sing this song. And any of you that need prayer, that have anything going on in your life, um, that wanna just come up and talk to the Lord at the altar or wanna talk to somebody and be prayed for, we're gonna be here. You can move as the Lord leads you. Let's pray for the close of our service. Father God, we thank you so much for your son. God, that you ordained that he would come thousands of years ago. It was always the plan. It was never plan B. God, you knew you would send him to the middle of nowhere. 
God, that you would use normal, dependent people who had nothing going for them to show your glory and your might and your power, God. God, we desire to be those people, people that have nothing going for us except that we know you and we've been saved by you. Teach us to be dependent people, God, who love you, who are overjoyed by your presence, God, who begin to experience your glory. God, will you move and stir in our hearts a joy to be used and a joy to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. You move as the Lord leads the church. Stand while we sing.